2: This is episode 25 with Usman Ndoi. Welcome to the As Told by Nomads podcast, where you'll learn how nomads, third culture kids, entrepreneurs, and leaders all over the world embrace their global identity and use their difference to make a difference. And now, Having lived on four different continents, here's your host, Tayo Roxy. Wow, um, what an episode today. Today's episode is with Usman Ndoy, who's a Senegalese who made his way. Uh, to America um, after going through a series of pilgrimages, and um, in this first part we discuss some of the his, some of his challenges growing up and how he overcame them, and how he sort of made his way across Africa right up right up until the point he was ready to go to America. That will be the second part. So please make sure you're you know you try and take as much as you can from him, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Today I have Usman Undoy, and he is coming to me here from, uh, is it Colorado right here?
3: Yeah, Denver, Colorado.
2: Colorado, and uh, I'm just going to ask him a few questions. So, Usman, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you grew up, and things like that?
3: Uh, thank you, thank you, Tayo, uh, for having me. And uh, I am very, very humble to be with you this afternoon, this beautiful afternoon here in Colorado. It's kind of uh, cold a little bit, but uh, I'm very excited. Uh, Originally, I came from Senegal, West Africa. It's a small country of 13 million people, uh, all the French colonization. Uh, I grew up uh, 30 miles from the capital, Dakar, in a small fishing village called Senegal. Uh, and in fact, I am my ethnic group. we are fishermen people that's uh the meaning uh of my last name doy the fisherman that's mm. why uh they call me that as a nickname
2: okay wow yeah um so don't aussi
3: well ouais, je parle bien le français. Je parle bien le français. Uh, j'ai j'ai, fait, j'ai le français. French for about seventeen years.
2: yes. Seventeen years. Alright. Now, moi, je juste un peu. I only speak. I only speak a little bit of French. I used to live in Burkina uh, Faso. That's uh, Ouagadougou. That's
3: Wagadougou, uh, That's 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 why that's why you are leading this movement called the uh, the culture. The oh. third, uh, third culture kid, because, <laughs> you know, when you are a third culture kid, you expect uh, the world should expect for you to speak many, many languages. I'm uh-huh. very fluent in French. I'm very fluent in English. Uh, I speak Arabic uh, and uh, I used to be fluent in Spanish as well.
2: Uh, well, you know, I'm on my way out. Hopefully I'll get there soon. <laughs>
3: OK, <laughs> you're, so, you're already there.
2: <laughs> thank you. So um, Senegal. So walk me through the story. From So you were born in Senegal. Then what kind of happened after that? Um, yes, I
3: was born in Senegal uh, in the late sixties. I am, uh, I am now forty-seven years old, going to forty-eight. But okay. uh, into my mind, I look like I'm one one years old because I'm always <laughs> going with the mindset of uh, impacting society in the world. Uh, in Senegal, when I was born in the late sixties, you know, it's it was the it was a new era for pretty much. Uh, Africa because uh, many of those countries they uh, they became independent in the 60s most of them and uh, that was really a new era where everybody we were kind of looking for a new style of life or for a new beginning and uh, my parents they were in their prime time they were young in their uh, 20s 30s and uh, they got married during those times and uh, they had a dream to live together and uh, build up a future my mom was a french teacher and my dad was an accountant in a cementary factory but uh, for some reasons you know coming out from some traditional culture and some some modernized culture at the same time uh, i think they they didn't last longer their relationship so as soon as I was born uh, they start having uh, issues and uh, my dad the easy way out was for him to check out uh, while my mom was pregnant with my younger sister and uh, he left and left a young woman with uh, one boy myself when I was one years old while she was pregnant and uh, when when he left Just think about it, uh, back in those days in the 60s where, you know, most of the African countries, they were kind of getting modernized, getting independence. And even in that village where we used to live, there was no, that time, there was no running water. There was no really electricity. I remember those days uh, while growing up. And uh, my dad left. He just left and... I, I I say to myself, maybe he was not ready to have a family. He was not ready because having a family, it's a mindset. It's a it's a something that has to be from your heart, your mind, and your soul because you know it's not anymore yourself. You are going to share your life with a woman or with a man, and probably you will procre- uh, procreate. Right. And he was not ready for that. And he walked out. And my mom was a very innocent young lady and the only thing she could do was to go back and reach out to my great-grandmother who's really uh the the heart of uh, my mom's family in the in, in that village and when she reached out to my great-grandmother who was already when i was born she was already 90 years old and uh she were she was there for us. She was trying to to lift us up, and uh, we were there for almost the first five years of my life with my mom, my young sister, and myself. And she was uh, sharing everything with us. So I grew up the first five years of my life without really having a role model besides my great grandmother and my mom. And. Uh, uh, before I turned five years old, my mom remarried. My dad remarried. I didn't really know who was my dad since early, to be honest.
1: Uh-huh. Uh,
3: so from that start point, uh in in a in a very traditional village, a woman always says, "Okay, if I stay with two children and not and the men walk away, you know those type of." Um, complex of inferiority, how the society will look at me as a woman, how society will will will, will check on me. Oh, she's a single woman, this two... So I think my mom she she, she wanted to to be to remarry just to preserve her dignity. You know what I mean? Right, right. So she found another man and they, they got remarried. She was uh, she was about 20, 23, 24, something like that. And my dad as well get remarried and for both the only way was rather than thinking about the two children they had already they were just chasing their own life you know what I mean yeah. and we, we were left it stranded particularly me because my mom remarried and uh, she went with uh, my young sister and her new husband and the, the only thing they could do was to ship me to my dad with her new bride, and uh, they shipped me to those traditional African culture where there was a compound, a big compound of 100 people, or more than that, where uh, cousins and brothers and all of those, they lived together in this, you know, those big compounds. So it was just one compound with more than 100 people. And I am there, they shipped me there at five years old, no ma'am. I have to live with a new stepmother I really don't know. And with a father, I've never, I don't remember nothing. So that's really where my story started, Tayo. And uh, for the next 15 years, my life was full of humiliation. I was a lost child. I was the one who doesn't have a mom in this compound. So everybody would abuse me. Everybody would beat me. My dad didn't really focus on raising me. He was more focused on raising my half-sisters and brothers he was having with the new stepmother, and it looks like my stepmother, uh, she was just having fun to see me getting spanked, getting yelled every day, every night, every moment, for many, many years. In fact, because of those, I've lost my self-esteem. I've lost my self-confidence, and I became a very fearful boy. Then this, uh had many consequences in my uh, education. So I felt every class because I go to class fearful. I come home fearful. The only pleasure I had was to play soccer all day long with my friends or go to the ocean to swim and uh, catch some fish or spend some time with my great-grandmother, who was already 100 years old when I turned five. Wow. And, uh, this is how I lived the next 15 years. The only thing I had was that old lady, uh, 100 years old. And now anytime they beat me here or they humiliate me, I would run to her. And, uh, she was the only, her house was the only place where really I knew what was the meaning of love. She taught me the real meaning of love. And, uh and uh, some words uh, in, uh, which I will share later on the interview with you. So that's really where my life started. The five, at five years old, the next 15 was very dark. I was lost. I was fearful. I've lost self confidence. I've, I've lost self-esteem because I just didn't have people to guide me. And as you know, we all need guidance at that moment of our life. Yeah, yeah, so,
2: exactly. Yes. Wow. Yes. So, mm. That, that's you know thank you for sharing for that um that's that's an amazing story there um so from five to fifteen you know you were twenty i'm I'm curious to know how that made you live your twenties because I know we talked before yesterday and you told me in your twenties it was a very interesting period in your life because you you went through a lot you went through a lot from five to fifteen but you also went through a lot um in your twenties as well. So, exactly. So exactly. Could you, exactly. On, could you expand on that? Uh, you know when I when I turned 5 years
3: old and they shipped me uh, to that big compound. Um I remember I remember the day. It was in uh it was in uh, 1972. I went to that compound. This is a new world uh because I used to stay with my great grandmother and my mom uh, in their own compound. So this was in in that compound where my mom and my great-grandmother and all my relatives, uh, my mom's relatives were, uh, I was very treated very well. I was the uh, first grand great-grandson, so everybody spoiled me. And uh, when they shipped me there, it was new to me, okay. Uh, I came. camp, there is this new young woman, and uh, I remember the day when I came, they made me sit in the corner. The guy who brought me told her, "This is Usman. That's the son of your husband." And she looked at she looks at me. She didn't smile. She didn't do anything. She just said, "Sit there." So I I, I remember I sit in that corner and uh, expecting. They say you go you are going to your dad's house. So I'm expecting. I've never I don't I didn't remember my dad at all. And. One, two hours later, this tall, big guy, very healthy and warm, very awesome, and uh, he was so, uh, so beautiful, just showed up. And the lady in the dialect, the native dialect, I remember uh, him asking to the lady, who's this kid? And the lady said, that's your son, Usman you know in in, in 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 you would expect a hug you would expect somebody to just you know lift you up and show you that he's happy to see you yes or no so he looks at me like i'm an, i'm I'm a I'm an stranger and i remember his words hey this is your new mom and you need to respect her from today on whatever she tells you to do you should you must do it if you don't do it You'll get corrected by me. I remember those words; it's still ringing in my. Even though I was five years, because you know, five years you can, you can see, if if people are caring or not. So from that start point of my life, it's never been uh, a lovely circumstances. I, I was. They made me do some some task that you know in African culture men shouldn't do. That's a task a woman should do, like you know cleaning. Stuff or going to the market where uh, I would be, you know, staying online where with all the woman trying to buy uh, uh, stuff for my stepmother and, and and people used to tease me for that. Man, you are a CC, You know, you do all the woman tasks. You are this. So um, I lived those dark moments, losing my self-esteem because when my friends are. Playing soccer or hide and seek or you know men's game. I am always doing some task at that compound which I shouldn't do as a young man because it was not normal in that culture. Um, so I've lost my self-esteem doing those things. Or I would go out with my friends. Uh, either we'll go to the farm uh, to um, look for some mangoes or stuff, and you know, as kid, we would do some some stupid thing. But anytime. I came home, the whole burden would be into me. Uh, my stepmother would say to my dad, you see your son, he went to this farm, he did this, he did that. And it was just fun for her to do that, just to see me get spanked. And I couldn't defend myself because usually they used to, uh, they used to beat me nighttime when uh, everybody is in bed. <laughs> so nobody would come to, uh, to protect me or to separate me. Then um, even when, when, uh, when I do my school homework, she would be just having fun to, you know, to, to, to slap me, to do stuff bad. Or those are the dark moments. So this went in, let's say, from five, six, seven. Yes, I was a kid. I, I probably didn't really understand. And any time I would run to my uh, great-grandmother and complain about what was happening, She used to, I used to come and complain and blame and whine. They do me this, they do me that. And when I run to my mom, she was more focused on her new husband to please a man and all of those. So my great-grandmother started by putting or implementing some seeds on my mind. I remember one day I went there. I was, they beat me so badly that I went there and complained. And she says, complain, stop the blame, Usman. Man up. That was the first word I have ever heard. That word, man up. So think, Tayo, at ten years old, they're telling you to man up. So I had to learn to man up. I said, "What's that?" She says, "You are a good boy. You are a very smart boy. You are a very intelligent boy, and you must understand that this life, um, it's a fight. It's You are not the only one with problems." I say, "But grandma." Um, they made me do things I shouldn't do. They beat me every day. They kissed me. They called me by names. She said, Usman, you must keep it real. Huh. I said, what is that? What is this? Seven years old. She says, keep it real is, um, you, you, you when people think bad about you, you, you should think good about you. You should keep it real with God. You, could, uh, you should keep it real with people, with society. I said, Grandma, how am I going to do that in a, in a compound where every day from sunset to sundown, somebody will find an excuse to beat me, to humiliate me, or to call me by name or to call my mom by name? How am I going to keep it real? She just said, you know what? She'll make she you know, as a kid, she'll she'll create something to make me smile. She said, That's what I call keep it real. You see how beautiful your smile. You're a good boy. And she would give me some money and says, Go and buy some candy and go back to Zakon. And I would cry again. Grandma, they're gonna beat me say, but you gotta go. That's your dad's compound. I cannot do anything about it. You gotta go. A man needs to be raised by a man. And I know in my heart, <laughs> When, whenever time I go back, they will. So these girls, again, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to primary school with my friends, uh, in that uh, neighborhood. I was not stupid. I was a, i was a very, you know, a smart kid. But you know how smart you are if you do not have guidance. It's very hard. So I would go to school with my friends without doing my school homeworks because nobody's helping me to do my homeworks. Or, when they help me do my homeworks, it's more fear and spanking and, and, and stuff like that. So, I, I, I don't have any focus on those uh, school homeworks. So, I am failing every class year after year. Year after year. I've never passed a class without failing one. That's how tough those moments were on me and um the only thing is when i i was a genius of playing soccer i was very good at playing soccer so the whole city was like he's you know uh, and they nicknamed me chris i remember that so even today when i go back to senegal people don't call me by usman they call me chris because there was a soccer guy who was very very he, he was a very good play uh, soccer player and i uh, they nicknamed me after him So the only pleasure was to play soccer all day long with my friends. And even when I go and have pleasure playing soccer, when I come back, uh, my stepmother would find something to report about me and my dad would spank me day in, day out. And just like the man was not proud to have me, I I didn't know what was going with him. So when I turned maybe 10, between 10 and stuff, they're they still doing the same thing, and I would run again. That was the only place where I found love, my great-grandmother, or playing soccer. And my great-grandmother, I remember going there and reporting every day, and she came up with another word I didn't know. And she says, Usman, everybody has problems, including me. Now, you see, I am more than 100 years old. I cannot walk. I cannot see well. I cannot do anything. But I am still looking for solutions of my problem Usman you gotta look solution for your problem and I'm like how am I gonna do that at 10 11 12 how am I gonna look for solutions grandma or oh, you'll find your solutions that kind lady I still hear her voice she's in heaven at this moment I'm speaking to you there is no day I don't hear her voice that's what kept me going no. and and uh, I would run back to that campground, the same center, till I turned 17. All my friends had their own bedroom. What was amazing to me was anytime I go to visit my friends, their mom, their dad are together. They they have older siblings, younger siblings, sisters and brother. And I am here. I ask a question to myself. Why they have their parents, I don't. You know, I am young. I don't understand. I didn't know what was the meaning of divorce and all of those things. But it was so hurtful that anytime all my surroundings, all my friends have their parents, I'm the only one with no, my parents together. And that was hurting me. That was something that have hurted me for so long. Even as an adult, when I left to Senegal, that thing kept going with me for many, many years. Um. And and that harmony was missing. That was a that peace was missing, and that was hurting me. And I became this angry guy. I became very angry. I became uh, I became very angry with myself. What did I? I took the whole blame on me hmm. because uh, my mom. When I go to her, she, she she's a lovely, kind woman, but she was more focused on her husband. My dad. I'm living with him and. His wife and now they are having children his focus on those children and not me and I am like a ping-pong ball in between the two families the only love I see is my great-grandmother and my friends I play soccer with the neighborhood everybody in fact for years the other ladies in that neighborhood they see how I was mistreated and they took advantage of that some of them would just see my dad coming from work and they would call him Oh, your son did this. Your son did that. So they were bo- putting more fire <laughs> on the on the frame. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And 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 you know, you know, those those life. This is how I lived till seventeen, and uh, I was fed up. I still spend my night with my with my grandmother, my dad's mom. It was very humiliating. All my friends has their own room and i had to come early rather than staying playing card and doing things with them i had to come early otherwise my my grandmother would lock the door which which would be another big issues because that one my dad would take it and <laughs> and beat me again and i remember uh, those days it was very ter- ter- it was very terrifying i mean i was i was a scary guy Tayo, I lost self-esteem and even the, the girls in the in the the girlfriends we used to date for me to have a girlfriend it was hard because they were always like you know he's he's get spanked, he's now 16, 17, they still beat him. You know, whose girl gonna go with him? Right. Because they, they are going to tease my girl. Tayo, I went to to hell those 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 fifteen. 50- and that 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 took a lot out of me. But for some reason, I believed what my great grandmother was saying, and uh, I was trying to find solution as much as I could. I was trying to keep it real as as much as I could, but couldn't find it for some for some reasons. Um. And one day I went to her. I said, "Grandma, I'm now 17, going to 18. all my friends are going." to universities, they are going to big schools in Dakar, the capital. I am here 17. There is nowhere I am going. I am here. I, I I rather kill myself than staying this way. No, 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 son, you cannot do that. And uh she says, Usman, I say yes, she says, I understand your situation. Uh, It's been rough for you. It's been tough since you was born, from day one when your dad worked away. And uh, I want you to know that you serve the world. What's that? You will make an impact, this man. Uh, I'll be in my grave, and you will do a lot of things. I say, how am I doing a lot of things? I failed all my classes. I don't have any skills. I don't know nothing. I am living like, like a lost child. How am I going to impact this society? She says, I'll be in my grave one day, and everybody who's humiliating you, one day, how, when, where, you will be far away, and they will hear things you will do in this world. Tell you, I was 17 when this old lady told me this, and she put the third word, she says, but you must be willing I say, what's that? She says, till you are not willing to do what it takes, Usman, you will never make a difference in this world. Hmm. Once I get that word, I say that to myself. And roughly that word was really drilled into me between 18 and 20. Then I start saying to myself, till you are not willing, You will die in this village. That sparkled me saying to myself, talking to myself, Usman, you will be taking back your life one way or another. How, where, when, I don't know. But this is how the divine power works. In 1981, I was uh, 11 years old or 12 and uh, I was watching TV, and they were shooting some uh, some uh, image of America. And those image, it was about uh, Bob Marley, the reggae singer man uh, from Jamaica. That was the day he passed away, 1981. And I'm watching TV, and they were showing a very nice building, and I'm i 'm sitting with some of my friends and some of my relatives that was uh, back then there was no uh, uh, color TV in many, many houses. And I said to myself, "Wow, this is beautiful. What is this?" And one of my uncles says, "This is America." <laughs> and I said, "What is America?" He says, "You see, this is why everybody think in this neighborhood used to be. America is not a piece of object. America is a country. They have a lot of freedom. They have a lot of opportunities. And it's beautiful. I've never knew what freedom was. I've never knew what opportunity was. I've never known what uh, uh, beauty is. And I, I say, I, I captured those three words but never shared it with anyone. Then when I turned 16, um. After playing soccer with my friends, I, I uh, he told me, hey, let's go to my brother and ask my big brother and ask for some money to buy a soccer ball. I said, OK, let's go. Then we went there and he was listening to some music, some type of music I've never heard about, never really. And I said, what is this? And he says, this is American music. They have rock and roll. They have reggae. They have RB, They have this and that. And I'm like, whoa. So I found ways, <laughs> anyway, to go to that room every time. I will, I would find an excuse to go, and uh, and and just listen to those music. I didn't understand well what they were saying. In fact, that guy he's the one who connected me with English because he was very brilliant and uh, he had a lot of books. He connected me with reading. Then he started giving me books to read about the world, life, history, literature. Uh, biography and uh, there was a he's the first one who told me you you are a very smart kid you should go to the American Culture Center at the embassy in Dakar and register and have a card then you can go every month and take some books the next you know Tayo, I did I did just that and when I went to the American Embassy and had this library card every month I would be going there just to learn English Mm. With, my, with the music. So through those books and music, before I left Senegal, I was very fluent in English. Wow. And uh, so at 20, when my great grandmother told me that willingness, that's when I said, I am willing to take back my life. And uh, I remember coming to one of my... Uh, in that compound, they were sitting there play, play, playing card or something. Uh, I really don't remember, and I said, I want to go to the Army. boy, everybody shouted against me, you stupid the army don't uh, they, they don't need an illiterate an egypt I swear to God man, and you know my self-esteem went down to the tank I'm like, man, why this I didn't know that that it was called dream killers <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I say, well, the army don't need somebody illiterate. Uneducated, well. Okay, what else can I do? I went to another relative and I said, could you find me a part-time job at your factory? Oh, you stupid, Osman. You're going to humiliate me if I bring you there. Wow! So everywhere I went, that was rejection. The toughest thing in life Tayo is being rejected. And it took me a lot of work to to not let that hurt me anymore. But rejection, lack of guidance, humiliation, um, and just not having a role model, except this older lady who couldn't even work. Those took the 20 years of my life, Tayo. The first 20 years of my life was full of humiliation, rejection, and all of those things. And uh, one day I was with one of my friends. We were walking night time i used to walk with him we used to walk all along for just you know lifting up each other and one night i told him you know man um i have to leave this town this village where are you going to go i said i don't know uh, it's too hard it's too tough you know I, I i the only thing i do is play soccer go to that ocean all the guys now, they left there in nice schools. And man, I get, I, get, I have to leave this place. Otherwise, I would kill myself. I cannot take him anymore. And he says, where are you going? I said, uh, I'm going to America. America? Where is America? I say, I don't know. How are you going to go there? I say, I don't know. But I'll find it. One way or another. Because they have a lot of freedom. <laughs> they hmm. have a lot of opportunity. And it's a beautiful there. How do you know that?
2: I say I don't know.
3: I, I'm hiding my secrets.
2: Right. I say I don't know.
3: Because they didn't know that I was reading books. I was listening to those music. Uh, from Bob Dylan to Bruce Springsteen. Uh, those were my hero back in those days. I, I would listen... For hours and hours to uh, Mick Jagger, uh, uh, the police were staying. Those were my heroes. I was listening, asking to myself, wow, who are these people? How did they make it? Oh, my God. And, uh, you know, when I shared that with my friend, he really didn't want me to leave because he, we were very close. He says, no, man, you just you are just 20. You know, don't do that. And back in those days, it's not like today where a lot of young Africans are trying to see the El Dorado, you know, crossing borders and countries or taking the boats. You know, you heard about those things. Back in those days in the uh, late 80s, that was not really an ag- uh, agenda in Africa for people living like that. Most of the people who were living, they leave for going to university in England or France or Germany, not just adventure. And uh, I'm the first one uh, of my generation who, at 21, I was so fed up and tired and all of those things. And one day, I went to my room, I grabbed a backpack, I put two pairs of shirts, two pairs of jeans, and one book I had from that man called Le Shemedi Bonheur, Le Shemedi Bonheur, The Way of Happiness. And I said, I'm going to leave Senegal. I didn't have the skills, I didn't have the knowledge, I didn't have the experience, nothing. But I had faith, I had my dignity and hope that one day I will take back my life. But I must be willing. The only person I said bye-bye was my old great-grandmother. She was now 115. And I came to her room that day. And I kissed her, and she says, Your body is very hot. What's going on? I say, Nothing, Grandma. I'm okay. You know, and I was sobbing. And uh, I was saying bye-bye to the person I love the most in my entire life because she stayed in this world 20 more years to to pull me out. And I left her, and I went to... I took the train, and... uh, it's a very emotional to tell you, Tayo.
2: Yeah, no. So,
3: it's a very deep moment, brother. Yeah. And I and I left the Senegal. I was 21 years old, turning my back to my great grandmother forever. That's that's where it started, bro. Wow. I'm um, very, very
2: emotional about this. Ah man, Usman, Thank you so much. That was uh, that, that that's quite the story there. Wow. Yeah, Um. yeah,
3: and I, my life started there. Uh, It made a big boom later years. Later, later, later years. People told me when they told my dad, he says, "I don't care. I don't care. I don't count on him, and he will never amount to thing." So I left September nineteen eighty eight, and in October. So I went to, uh, my, I studied with uh, Mali, Bamako. don't know nobody there, staying in the street, uh, sleeping in the marketplace and trying to find ways to to eat, to uh, take shower somewhere and to do my thing and uh, found ways to cross the border and went to Ivory Coast. And that's in Ivory Coast, uh, I stayed six months doing all kinds of odd jobs and from Ivory Coast, I was just talking to some people that, I want to go to America. I want to go to America. (laughs) And they said, oh, man, it's not easy to go to America. It's very hard. I said, but I'll be there one way or another. And one guy says, unless you go to Libya, you can cross and go to Italy. And from Italy, maybe you can find, you know, I'm now 22 years old. What do I know? I've decided to cross again, borders, to go to Libya. And uh, I took a, a car, then we took a bus, then we get back to Mali, and from Mali, I took a jeep. There were some guys, Tuaregs, we were paying them money to cross the border between Mali and Algeria. So I get to Algeria one night in Tamaraset, I remember the city town, and I said, I want to go to Libya. And they said, from Algeria to Libya. You cannot take a car, you have to cross the Sahara Desert by foot, and many people are dying doing that. But, brother, I was willing to do what it takes so far. That's where the story begins, brother.
2: Hmm. Yes, wow. Um, so you went to Libya,
3: yes, I went to Libya. Um, uh, with some we were a group of probably 80 people. And they say you cannot bring heavy stuff because the Sahara Desert is very heavy to, to cross it with stuff. So I took my blue backpack and still have my book <laughs> and a gallon of water. I've never The book is still in my library. While I'm speaking to you, it's over there. I'm seeing it. It's been with me more than 27 years, that book. And uh, we were crossing the border. And we paid this guy, uh, We it was very hard, very very uh, something I've never ever experienced in my life. Those dunes, the mountains. It was so cold nighttime, so hot daytime. And uh, we were able, you know, to to walk the first day till probably 7 p.m. So we walked from you know uh, three in the morning till. 7 p.m. And we we took rest, we slept, we ate some sardines and some bread. We Everyone have a small bottle of water and you, sh- you should keep your water, you know, just one zip. Otherwise, if the water is finished, uh, you die. Because we were passing and seeing people dying and uh, stuff like that. And a lot of uh, dead bodies. And I say, you know, I will make it. You know, even though I was hydrated and tired the second day in fact that second day was really where the whole thing have changed because the, while we were sleeping in the middle of the night the Tuareg who was guiding us run away and left us by ourselves. so we had two days now to walk didn't know wherever we turn around it's only dunes and mountains and the eagles waiting for us to die <laughs> for them to eat <laughs> you know yeah And uh, uh, it was, it was, it was, but what I've learned in, 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 in in that journey, crossing the Sahara Desert was uh, strength, perseverance, team spirit, because uh, in the fourth day, there was two guys, they were about to die, and the whole group says, look, we have to abandon them. There's anything we can do. And me and three other guys, we said, No we are not going to abandon anybody. Either we'll get to Libya together or we'll die. So the 74 of them left us back. We stayed with those two people. We shared this little water we had with them and the piece of breads we had till they were able to, you know, walk. We would walk one hour then we'll stay and for them to have some rest. And the third day, that's that's what we did. And uh, the fourth day, we woke up in the morning. You know, we had our our legs really swelling because it was very hard. I remember those days. It was swelling. Our feet, all of us were swelling. We were hydrated. Now we had a little water left and a little uh, food. So we said, look, um, we just, we are not going to have to eat in the morning we are going to keep it till midday and we eat then maybe we'll push till we see libya or somewhere so um that's what we did and uh in the fourth day we were able to join the other groups but they were stopped by the border guards and they took their money their stuff. and you know what i've learned there is do not betray your friends. You know, um, do not turn your back to people who cares about you. I've learned to, to keep love, to, to support people as much as I could. I've learned to love other people through that Sahara Desert besides being perseverant, team spirit, uh, going after what you want and never give up, no matter how tough, no matter how the situation is. To this moment of my life, in fact this morning my wife was we were talking and my wife was telling me some kind of stuff why you don't do that? I say, honey I'm not a give up guy I just don't give up I'm not someone who blamed the world that because this didn't happen or that didn't happen I point fingers no I always stand up with no excuses and keep going my great grandmother told me to keep it real to focus on solution and to always be willing That's how I live my life. To this moment, I'm speaking to you, Tayo. So we get to Libya, and uh, it was a new country to me. Uh, I don't speak the language, Arabic. It's a Sharia, Islamic laws. Uh, It's a very rich country, which was totally different to whatever things I've experienced before, because I came from West Africa, where we don't have petrol or diamonds and gold. Now, I'm in Libya, a very rich country, but it was uh, led by a dictator. That's where I ended. I was 22 years old, February 1989. I thought that I would just come here and move on and cross the border and take a, sh- uh, a board and go to Italy. That was a different story. So I was stuck in Libya for three years. That's why when I was speaking with you yesterday, I said, you are a brave man. You are a leader. You are a brave, brave, brave guy to uh, uh, create, you know, momentums that can change the world. And I say because when I was twenty-four, I was stuck in Libya trying to find my, my way out. Out. Oh. Yes. So from Libya, uh, I stayed three years. But what have helped me? That was a blessing because. Uh, in Libya, it was very hard for immigrants. It doesn't matter wherever you come from. The Libyans, they were very rich people, a lot of petrol, and, you know, leaded by one man who dictated everything. And uh, we, we we were not really well uh, treated. We were not very well treated as as foreigners. They would humiliate us as well. They would Sometimes put some of the guys in jail or they would just nighttime time came to you and, and just abusing foreigners back in those days. But I was lucky. My first year were very, very tough in Libya because I didn't know the dialect, the language, and I was new to the culture and trying to find my way. I did all kind of jobs in Libya. I was a mason. I was a painter. I was a bricklayer. I was a uh, car wash. <laughs> I did uh, uh, some, uh, some kind of uh, carrying boxes for people and stuff. And after my first year, I moved to another city to learn how to paint cars. <laughs> and uh, from there, I, I couldn't find a job. And then one day I moved to another city called Shati. And uh, that's where I was doing a lot of brick layers uh, for many, many months. And one day, some, of, some guys from Morocco and Tunisia said, hey, we want to play soccer with the youth of the city. Do you know how to play soccer? I said, oh, yeah, I'm a very good soccer player. But, you know, the, uh, the divine power is working with me. But that day I was so tired, I say I don't want to play. And even though some Senegalese I met there was warning me, look, the Libyans, they are very arrogant. They are very this, very that. You know, you, you shouldn't go to play. But I was in love with soccer. I said, for the first time since I left Senegal, I didn't play soccer. Let me see if I still have my groove on. And I told them, yeah, after my job, I'll come and play. Then I went. We did a big game, and I played so well, I scored and made uh, a guy called Abderrahim from Morocco score. And from that day on, the whole city felt in love with me, calling me Abedi Pele. You remember Abedi Pele, the soccer star from Ghana?
2: Yes, Abedi Pele, yeah. I know. Yeah, be-
3: because he beat them in 1982 on the African Cup. He, they, Ghana took the cup by beating Libya and they, the only thing they remember about West Africa is Abedi Pele so they like he is the new Abedi Pele of the city for two years in that city they gave me a job uh, one, one of the boys his name is Nasser Egdir, very good boy he, uh, he went to his dad and said pa there is this guy from Africa he plays soccer like Abedi Pele and the city want to include him in the city team, but he doesn't have a job. They hired me that night at their bakery. <laughs> Amazingly. And I I worked there as a baker, never knew how to do bread or to make a bread. Sorry. <laughs>
1: so
3: I, be, I became a baker. And two months later, they, sh- they show how determined I was. And the old man, his name is uh, Alim Gerhi. He says, I want you to become the manager of the bakery. My kids, they love you. And the city, they love you. So I would be staying in that bakery all day long from 2 in the morning till 4 p.m. Then just to keep up, to keep it real and focus on my solution and willingness I would go and play soccer. I was a superstar of soccer in that town. Everybody felt, so I stayed there for two years, trying to save money to go to America. (laughs) And then uh, I left 1992. I went to Morocco, trying to find my way to America. And then from Morocco, I couldn't find a visa. And I went to Tunisia, the same. And I came back to Morocco. And they said, you can find a visa to go to South America, Brazil. So I was able, because I had a lot of money with me, uh, I was able to cross uh, Africa, and I had a visa for Brazil. Then I went to Rio de Janeiro, where they speak Portuguese. Don't speak any word of Portuguese. <laughs> and stayed there, trying to find my way to America. It didn't work out. Then I crossed border, went to Grand Francis. In Grand France, I was able to play with a soccer team called Géldard de Coule. I stayed there and I played for nine months. And then things didn't work out the way I wanted. And I I met a guy who was a legionnaire, the French legend. And he says, maybe if you go to Europe, you can find a team to play soccer. And I say, no, my dream is to go to America. And he says, no. But go to France, maybe from there you can find a way to go to America. Then I found ways to go to Paris. Stayed there for almost a year. Couldn't find my way. <laughs> so then I came back to Africa. You know, started again from a square zero. Because one, one guy said he would, he's a relative of mine. He promised that he would help me to come to America. But he has his own plan to put me down. And I came back to Africa, and they humiliated me there for many, many, many months. Then one night, I took my backpack again, and I went to Gambia. stayed in Gambia for seven months, looking for a way out to go to England or to America. And then from Gambia, I went to Guinea-Bissau. Then from Guinea-Bissau, uh, I found my way in Guinea-Conakry. stayed there for two years doing my business. And it took 10 years of my life as a third culture kid trying to find my way. Learning, asking, um, experiencing, and that's really uh, what made me the, the man I am. So in 1998, finally, I was able to find my way to the U.S. And I get to the country of my dream, a country I love to death. In August 1998, that's the first time I've seen the study of liberty. And I said to myself, this is a new chapter. This is a new beginning. I was 31 years old and I said, I came to America to become part of America. I came to America to contribute. I came to America to make a difference in my life and into many other people's life. Till God made me meet you today. And America is another story. We can just talk about it too.
2: <laughs> yes. No. So this would conclude part one of the interview. Yes, yes. <laughs> Stay tuned for part two of this conversation with Usman, where he discusses what happens when he came to America and where he is now. You've just been listening to the Ask Tall by Nomads podcast. For more ways to use your difference to make a difference, as well as for show notes, head over to www.uidmag.com. Till next time, go out and make an impact in your
1: world.
0: I'm Andrea, founder of a boutique handbag brand, Andy, and this is why I switched to Shopify i tried three other platforms prior to shopify and i remember my breaking point was when i would try to make one little change and my entire site would go down with the drag and drop theme editor we don't need to hire a developer to do any coding each theme is automatically optimized on mobile it's incredible get a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com listen go to shopify.com listen to take your business to the next level today don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket?